two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, in which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. So we're starting, as I mentioned, this new series, Genesis 1 through 11. We're calling it uh, Beginnings. And Genesis 1 in particular is, in so many ways, a fraught with peril because there's so many questions that are asked of this text. <clears throat> I heard a story this week about a mom who was approached by her four-year-old, and uh, her four-year-old asked her, Mom, where did I come from? And uh, the mom started panicking, freaking out. She hadn't prepared yet to have the birds and the bees conversation, but she stumbled through, you know, the best explanation she could devise on short notice that would package all of this sensitive information for a four-year-old's Mind. So she tried to sort of touch on the biology and she tried to touch on what the Bible teaches. And she, she thought she really had synthesized all of this complex information incredibly well for a four-year-old. And she was feeling pretty proud of herself. And her four-year-old son looked at her and sort of shook his head and shrugged his shoulders and walked away. And as he walked away, he turned around and said, Mom, Jimmy said he's from Indiana. All I want to know is where I came from. And uh, that's typically what we do with Genesis, especially Genesis 1. 
uh, we have gone to great lengths to answer all kinds of questions, and they're important questions, but they're questions that the text is not really asking. And uh, so I'm sure I'm going to disappoint some of you (laughs) because you want to hear all those questions. This week I did actually write a brief post I wrote a brief post online. You can read it about the six days of creation. So if you're interested in that, you can read it there. We're not going to really speak about that today because the text's main point is not to deal with all of these questions that modern science and that our own inquisitive minds raise. Instead, we want to see this opening section of the entire Bible in the context of the broader story of the Bible. And more importantly, we want to see it as the original author and as God himself intended it to be seen. So what's the purpose of this very, very famous and very true piece of literature that was inspired by God? Well, the purpose is very simple. It's to show us that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of Israel, the God who sent Jesus into the world is the God who made everything. That's the point. And here's how I want to summarize it, putting the same thing in a different way. Here's your main idea. All things were made by God and all things exist for God. That's what Genesis 1 is about. All things were made by God and all things exist for God. Three points for you this morning as we think about that idea, looking at the scripture. First, we see that God made the universe from nothing. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. Now, the most obvious point of this chapter is that God is the main character. God is the first, like literally the first lexical subject of the Bible. God is the centerpiece. In a world that's prone to narcissism, we need to hear this. For people that like to put themselves at the center of everything, people like me and like you, we need to hear this. The Bible is about God. God is the central figure and the protagonist of the story of the Bible and, moreover, of the story of this world. God is the hero of the Bible. The Bible is not ultimately about you and me. It's not ultimately about learning to be better, more moral people. The Bible ultimately is about God. It's God's self-revelation. And the first verse in the Bible tells us that God is the assumed center of all reality. When there was nothing else, God was and is and is to come. And the Bible tells us very clearly that when there was no matter, when there was no time, when there were no light particles, no sound waves, no cells, God was and is and is to come. God has always been God and always will be God. In the beginning, God was eternally present. In the beginning, God had always been. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The second part of this famous sentence teaches that the one true God made everything that is not God. That is the universe. And it teaches that he made it all from nothing. That's the clear teaching of this verse. There was no sort of pre-existent primordial soup, no material that God used to fashion the universe. No, there was nothing else except God. And God made all things by 
speaking them into being. You saw again and again the repeated phrase, and God said, and God said, and God said. God made everything by the word of his power. And so thinking about this chapter structurally, verse 1 is the prologue to the rest of chapter 1. Verse 1 tells us that God made the universe out of nothing, and then the rest of the chapter... The rest of what Tim read tells us that he formed and fashioned the universe that he made. So the point of Genesis 1-1 is theological. God made everything. The how question, the one that a lot of you I'm sure are interested in, is not really answered in this chapter other than to tell us that God created everything ex nihilo, from nothing. So thinking about this verse, Genesis 1-1, theologically means something important for your daily life right now and for everything that we see. Here's what it means. Because God made everything, everything's identity is primarily defined by its relationship to its creator. A tree is a tree fundamentally because a tree exists in relationship to God. Light is light. Fundamentally, because light exists as a created substance in relationship to God. There was a relationship between God and the universe that precedes anything else that we need to know about any given thing. In uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, one of the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis is telling the story of a boy named Eustace Scrub. And he says that Eustace is the kind of boy that almost deserves that name. Eustace Scrub is on a trip with a few other of Lewis's famous characters, and he finds himself on this island as the Dawn Treader, a ship, has docked there for a time. And he meets another character who he finds out is actually a fallen star that has taken human form. And Eustace is not a very imaginative child, and he says to this fallen star, in our world, stars, stars are just balls of gas. And then Aslan butts in and says, even in your world, my son, that is not what a star is. It's only what it's made of. So don't confuse what something is with what it is made of. The isness of every created thing is primarily defined by the fact that it's made by God and exists in relationship with God. So right away, Genesis 1-1, the Bible speaks against the popular idea that the universe that we live in is random and meaningless. That's really the, the conclusion of secular thought, of postmodern thoughts. And it's really the only conclusion that one can come to logically if you don't conclude that God made the world. The only view of the world that gives any hope or meaning is the Christian view the view that God made the world, he stands behind it, and he directs it. Even non-Christian scholars see this because the image of God is imprinted upon all of us. For example, listen to the very famous physicist Stephen Hawking. Here's what he says. The odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. It would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way, except as the act of a God who intended to create beings like us. One more quote from the scientist Francis Collins. This is from his book called The Language of God. He writes this. 
We have this very solid conclusion that the universe had an origin, the Big Bang. 15 billion years ago, the universe began with an unimaginably unimaginably bright flash of energy from an infinitesimally small point. That implies that before that, there was nothing. I can't imagine how nature, in this case the universe, could have created itself. And the very fact that the universe had a beginning implies that someone was able to begin it. And it seems to me that had to be outside of nature. These are non-Christian scientists that are drawing this conclusion. And it's the same conclusion that Genesis 1 presupposes and states that God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of Jesus, the God of Israel, made this world out of nothing, and everything in the universe, the universe itself, and all of us exist in relationship to God as creator. So first, God made the universe out of nothing. That's what Genesis 1-1 teaches. Now Genesis 1-2, through the rest of the chapter, teach us our second point. God forms and fills the universe. So 1-1 is about the creation of the world and everything. But the bulk of the chapter is about God sovereignly and wisely forming the universe, giving it order, placing creatures in their various appropriate habitats, and arranging everything according to its purpose and design. We even see that in this very enigmatic verse, Genesis 1-2. This verse describes the preformed world. Look at what it says. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And then who is there? The Spirit. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is a really significant verse. And the reason is because of this. In the ancient Near Eastern world, the world in which Genesis was written, the deep waters and the darkness represent chaos. They represent the unknown. They represent fear. That's why at the very end of the Bible, by the way, in Revelation 21, we read that in the new world that God is going to bring through Jesus, there will be no more sea. Now, those of you that like the beach are like, seriously, that stinks. But that's not to be read literally. It's not that there's not going to be any literal water. There will be literal water, by the way, in heaven. It's another symbolic way of saying that there's not going to be any chaos or fear And that's exactly what we see in Genesis 2, or Genesis 1-2. We see that the Spirit is hovering over the formless, chaotic void. I mean, think about it. It's not just ancient Near Eastern people that were scared of the deep. The reason Jaws is scary, and Jaws is scary, by the way. That should go without saying, shouldn't it? The reason it's scary isn't just because there's a big shark. It's because you don't know where the big shark is coming from under the water. I mean, I've been scarred by this personally. My dad, who was supposed to love me and care for me, we would grow up and go on vacation, and he would take me out into the the depths, into the deep, the formlessness and void of Galveston, you know, the nasty Gulf of Mexico, more oil than water, et cetera, et cetera. And, And we would get way out on this, you know, it seemed like about the size of this table flotation device, and dad and I would be out there, and instead of saying, son, I love you, I'm so glad we're here, he would say, you know, Luke, the water is way, way above my head right now. And I'm like eight years old. I'm like, Dad, so if, the, if this got a hole and if we fell off, 
You wouldn't be able to stand up? No, no, it's way, way above my head. In fact, we're probably too far out. And, you know, he just tried to scare me. And I was mortified. I was quivering in fear out there in the water on family vacation. Really, all of the problems I have can be traced back to that moment. Um, The deeps are frightening. The deeps are scary. The deeps represent the unknown. Darkness represents the unknown. And the point of this verse is that there is this formlessness. There's this foreboding that is all kept in check by the Spirit. This chapter tells us that God is the architect and the builder of the world, and he puts the world into order. That's what we see here in verse 2 and on through the chapter. This is really significant for another reason in the ancient world, though. In the ancient world, there were all kinds of creation myths or cosmogony stories, how the world came to be. And the the world in which Genesis 1 is written is a world where all the other cultures have a story of creation. And all of those stories, for example, in the Babylonian story, we read about Baal, one of the Babylonian gods in their pantheon, fighting this battle against this dragon monster named Chaos, and he defeats him. We see in the Enuma Elish, a very famous creation myth that's dated before Genesis 1 was written, actually. And in the Enuma Elish, the god Marduk defeats the goddess Tiamat. And there's a battle, there's a fight, and the earth sort of accidentally comes into being as a result of these gods battling it out. In every single ancient Near Eastern story, something like that is happening. There's always a fight between the gods. There's always a battle except Genesis. Except Genesis. In Genesis, you don't see this sort of dualism. You don't see anything being created as the result of a battle. No, this is not a battle. It's a building project. Listen to Meredith Klein. Here's what he says. The creation words are not battle cries, but architectural directives. God has no adversary in his original creating. He does not build with a trowel in one hand and sword in the other. There is no need for the sword. More than that, there is no need for the trowel. This builder does not use tools. He does not really work with his hands. The word of his will is his all-effective instrument. What the author is saying is this, God has no rival. God has no rival. He sovereignly and wisely builds and constructs his world with beauty and with order. And that's what these six days are ultimately designed to show us. The structure of the chapter is structured around the repetition of these six days. And what we see is that God forms and orders the formless void, the chaos of the universe. And you might notice upon repeated readings that there's like a remarkable parallelism in this chapter. Days one, two, and three are about the habitations of the world or realms being formed. So the expanse on day one, verses four and five, the water and the sea, the vaults or the firmament on day two, verses six through eight, and the earth, the dry land on day three, verses nine through 13. So those are the habitations, so to speak. And then days four, five, and six parallel days one, two, and three. But these days are about the inhabitants being formed and given sub-dominion under God over their various realms. So the sun and moon are formed on day four, created, verses 14 through 19, to rule the expanse. The birds and the fish, verses 20 through 23, are made on day five. 
And land animals and mankind, which we're going to talk about next week, are made on day six, verse 24 through 31. So they parallel each other. And the whole point is that God is ordering and designing his universe with a purpose. God gives a command, let there be. There is a fulfillment of the command. It was so. And then God pronounces a benediction, a blessing upon his creation. He says it was good or beautiful. It was very good. It was very beautiful. So God forms and fills the universe that he made. Two pieces of application I want you to hear. Okay, first, first, Genesis chapter 1 gives us confidence that the universe has meaning. And that life has meaning. Life has a purpose. This concept of purpose and meaning, very practically, is very essential to a well-lived life. We need to know where this whole thing is going. If we're going to live life well. If we're going to live life with hope. And in fact, that's one of the great challenges of our age. Really, ultimately, all forms of non-Christian thought are going to run against this great barrier of meaninglessness. If life is just a random collection of atoms that just happen to smash together to form all that we see, if that's true, if that's the story, then the question is, what is the point? What is the point of that? What's my point? And the answer is that there is no point. But the problem with that view of the world, you see, is that it is unlivable. We can't really live as if there is no point to our existence. And great authors and thinkers throughout history have recognized that, even if they're not Christians. For example, Jean-Paul Sartre, a philosopher, writes this. Not going to encourage you, by the way. But listen to this. Here's what he says. It was true. I had always realized it. I hadn't any right to exist at all. I had appeared by chance. I existed like a stone, a plant, a microbe. I could feel nothing to myself but an inconsequential buzzing. I was thinking that here we are eating and drinking to preserve our precious existence and that there's nothing, nothing, absolutely no reason for existing. Who wants to have a drink with that guy, right? Whoa, settle down. But the point of that is that that's actually the logical conclusion of a life in a universe that's random and meaningless. Ernest Hemingway, one of my favorite authors, which probably says something about me, in one of his short stories, A Clean, Well-Lighted Place, here's how he puts it very simply, life was all a nothing and man was nothing too. Both of those men, not coincidentally, ended up taking their own lives. The reason is that life cannot be adequately explained. It cannot be adequately explained by saying that this is all a random accident. That's a hopeless view that no one can actually consistently live by and that no one really deep down believes. We all want to see order and form in life and in the universe. We all want to see how we fit into the story. Why is that? Well, it's because there really is a purpose and there really is a story and we really are a part of it. That's the way we are wired. And Genesis 1 gives us the answers we need. So the first piece of application is that the universe has meaning and purpose. And the second piece of application that I want you to hear is this. Genesis 1 tells us that the world is good. 
The world is good. In fact, I prefer the word beautiful. Have you ever thought about what's really happening here? When God repeatedly says, it was good. It was good. It was good. It was very good. You know, I've, to be honest, always sort of thought of that like God is like a quality control inspector here. You know, like you get a pair of shoes, and in the pair of shoes, sometimes you'll find this little tag that says, this pair of shoes was inspected by so-and-so on such-and-such a date, and there's a little stamp there, I guess, to make sure that the shoes are uh, meeting all of their guidelines, and they're not going to give my feet blisters, and they're going to be comfortable, and they're made of the proper material. It's making sure that everything works. Is that how you think of Genesis 1, what God is doing? Is he going around saying, check, 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 sun, incorrect place, earth, approximate number of degrees from sun, check, check, check? No, that's not what's going on here when God's saying it was good. He's not acting like some sort of divine universe inspector. God says it was good. It was very good because he enjoys it. God sees the world as good because God loves the world. And the world loves God. Nature loves God. Nature sings praises to God, to its creator. That's why Jesus tells us in Luke 19 that if we won't sing, what will cry out? Anybody know? The rocks. The rocks will cry out. That's why Isaiah prophesies that the trees of the field will clap their hands. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Nature knows something that we know too, but that we resist admitting. Nature gives us a clue to the meaning of the universe. Nature knows that God loves it. Nature worships and praises its maker Because nature knows that its maker enjoys it. And we should look at nature and look at the world and do the same thing. We should know that our maker loves us and enjoys us. Listen, listen. Why is it that when you go to the Grand Canyon and look at it, you feel a sense of awe and dread and wonder? If the universe is an accident, that cannot... Listen, that cannot be adequately explained by chemical reactions in your brain. I just don't buy that. A much better explanation is that you have a sense of wonder and awe when you look at the Grand Canyon because the universe proclaims the handiwork and the glory of its maker. It's shouting and singing praise to the one to whom and through whom and for whom are all things. Why is it when you hear a piece of beautiful music that's been constructed and put together by those who have been skilled to do such things, you have a sense of amazement and emotion? Why is it that when you look at the sunset over the ocean, you can be overwhelmed with the beauty of this world? Why is it that we are like that? Why is it that when you watch planet Earth, I've seen planet Earth, that we're so stunned at the variety and the wonder and the miracle that is this existence. Why is it? Here's why. It's because in all of those moments you are being summoned to join nature in the praise of its creator. Nature is like a choir 
It's like a choir singing praise to God and you're being invited in in every single one of those moments. You're being summoned to see that God made everything and that God loves this world and that God loves you. You're being summoned to see that God made this world good and that God is good. But we resist doing that. Nature seems really happy. We seem really sad. Why? More on that in just a minute. But lastly, we need to see the third point, that God rules the universe from heaven. God rules the universe from heaven. That's the point of day seven. Chapter two, verses one through three. On the seventh day, God rests. Now, okay, do I need to say this? God is not tired. Okay. (laughs) The reason that God rests isn't because he's exhausted and needed a day off. So why does God rest then? Something else is intended. And here's what it is. God's rest is a royal rest. God's rest is the rest of a king sitting down on his throne and looking out over his kingdom with satisfaction. Now remember, this is an ancient Near Eastern story that's in some ways a polemic against other ancient Near Eastern stories. And remember, all these gods would fight it out. And whichever god won, he would sit down on his throne and he would glory in his own victory, right? And his own power. And so Genesis is playing on that story by telling us the true tale of the world. God builds, he constructs, he is the master architect over everything. But in the true story, there's been no divine fight. There's always and only the one God. And he makes this good and beautiful world. And then he sits on his throne to reign over it like a victorious king, like like a well-pleased artist when he or she finishes a painting and looks at it and says, that's really good. Like like a musician who has recorded a piece of music that they have worked hard on and they've poured their life into and they listen to the recording and they think, that is beautiful. That's what God's doing on the seventh day. He's entering into his good rule of the world. Isaiah 66 confirms this, by the way. There we read, God say this, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? All these things, the universe, my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. So Genesis is portraying God as the cosmic builder who attains his royal rest on the Sabbath, on the seventh day. Genesis identifies God as the great king of the world, the one enthroned as the judge and ruler over this cosmic temple that he has built to worship and serve him. So the seven days of creation teach that this universe is from God and that this universe is for God. Everything exists for God. God is the point. God is the purpose. God is the Alpha and the Omega. God made you and God made me and God made everything for one purpose, to see him for who he is, to know his love and to love and worship him in return. Why do you exist? 
You exist because you are the crowning achievement of all that God has made. You exist to reflect the beauty, the wonder, the power, and the glory of God through whom are all things and for whom are all things. I think that sounds good. Right? That sounds good. We have to ask one more question, okay, before we finish. Um, Why isn't the world like that now? Why isn't my life like that now? Why do I, even when I said that, you might have resisted hearing that a little bit, that this world is for God. Why? God made the world beautiful, Genesis 1. God rules the world from heaven, Genesis 2. But why doesn't the world reflect that? Well, we're going to see that in a few weeks in more detail, Genesis chapter 3. But for now, suffice it to say that we refused to see the love of God and to love him in return. And that refusal, that uh, cosmic act of treason that we committed against God, that rebellion against his lordship, that has injected a fatal viral strain into all of creation. The Bible calls it sin. And the result is that the world bears marks of its maker still. And we still bear God's image, but it's all deeply scarred and deeply broken. I mean, I said, the world is good, and then you might have thought, well, then why are there wars in the Middle East for the last 5,000 years? The world is good. Well, I went on an African safari, and I saw a lion devouring a gazelle. The world is good. I think about the blood and the tooth and the claw. The world is good. My life doesn't feel good. My life feels deeply, deeply hurt. The world is good. I don't feel close to God. I feel separated from God. I feel radio silence from God. Why? The reason is because of the viral strain. The viral strain of sin has infected this world with brokenness so that the world is no longer what God made it to be. But the story doesn't end there. We're going to see in the coming weeks that God loves the world in creation and God loves the world in recreation. And that's the good news. That's why there's one other book of the Bible that starts with in the beginning. Anybody know what it is? It's John. We just studied that last year. John tells us that God loves the world so much that he enters into the world himself in the person of Jesus Christ. God becomes one of us in Jesus. He enters the world to bring healing, to bring restoration, to bring forgiveness, to rid the world of the strain of sin. He enters the world to remake, to remake what we have destroyed. And he does that by being unmade himself on the cross. God loves the world so much that he takes on the curse of our cosmic treason against him. He allows himself, in a sense, to become formless and void at the cross, to be unmade so that we in all things can be remade. And so through God's work in Jesus, through God's making all things new in Jesus, we can enter into God's rest by faith. That's why the author of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 4, 9, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So the story begins here. God made the world. God sustains the world. And God loves the world. He called it very good. 
And although we have marred and messed up God's world through sin, the story tells us that God has acted in love to remake the world through Jesus so that we can see him and know him and enter into his eternal rest through Christ by faith. That's the one true story of the world. It's the one true story of your life. Genesis 1 is summoning you to enter into the story by trusting in Jesus. Will you do that? Let's pray.